The reading this morning is from Titus chapter 2. This is on page 1198. It's Titus chapter 2. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what a privilege it is that we have a speaking God, a God who has given us the Bible. Please help us to listen. Please help us to listen in a way that, um, that loves what we hear, even if it's hard. And please help us to listen in a way that puts into practice what you have to say and doesn't just leave it here once we've closed our Bibles. So please change us by your, by your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. So, um, we're rejoining the book of Titus that we spent a couple of weeks in so far. Um, You might remember, as as Tim alluded to earlier, that uh, Titus, he's one of Paul's protégés. He's already been given various instructions by Paul, um, already been told to do various things. You might remember chapter 1, verse 5, have a look again. Um, Paul's telling Titus to appoint godly leaders in the church in Crete, uh, to to lead that church, he wants them to have elders in place. Or last week, as, as Tim was preaching for us in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, uh, Titus is to refute errors and those who teach them uh, there in Crete. 
And today, we're going to start by having a quick look at some more instructions from these verses that Yvonne just read for us. Um, You might have spotted them there. They're there in verse 1, verses 7 and 8, and uh, in verse 15. So let's read them quickly. Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In everything, set them, the people, an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So do you see Do you see the instructions to Titus that Paul's giving here? It's, it's, it's relatively straightforward, isn't it? Teach sound doctrine. Teach the healthy gospel message, um, as opposed to the sort of disease teaching that the false teachers are peddling uh, that we looked at last time. And as you teach that sound, healthy gospel message, um, that doctrine, do so with integrity and dignity and the authority given by God himself. And as you do that teaching and doing it in that kind of a way, Titus, you're to model godly character, and Titus is to exhort others to imitate him. Quite straightforward, really, isn't it? Um, And the way that Paul tells Titus to go about this um, is he addresses different kind of groups. Uh, Paul tells Titus how these different groups ought to behave, what accords with sound doctrine, Uh, Do you remember we saw in in, uh, the very first verse of the letter, um, Paul describes the gospel as the truth that leads to godliness. Um, In other words, the relationships between these different groups within the church, they're important. Um, And so the rest of the chapter, it takes the form of a sort of household code um, as Paul thinks through the Christian's lifestyle in terms of their basic relationships with one another. And we're going to see five categories as we go through. But these different relationships, these different sort of basic realities for the Christians, uh, Paul's going into depth on them because there ought to be an ironclad link between what they believe on the one hand and how that then plays out in their lives. Uh, There ought to be a a strong link between what their faith, uh, they say they believe, and what that then looks like in action. So let's go through them one by one, um, starting with the older men in verse 2. Have a look at it with me. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, it's interesting here, um, the the word uh, here for older men, it's different from elders back in chapter 1. Here, rather than talking about leaders, Paul is literally talking to Titus about men who are older. Um, And it might be that you're here this morning, depending on how you feel, depending on quite who you're sat near, it might depend on whether you feel like you're an old man or a young man um, here this morning. Uh, Interestingly, this week I was uh, reading that the the Greek thinker, Hippocrates, he sort of split life up into seven sections, and the oldest section, the one after which there is no sort of older stage to get to, is 56. So take that as you want, that's Hippocrates' (laughs) thought. Um, But if you're a younger man, don't switch off. Don't switch off, because uh, for you, it might not apply to you right now, or it might do, depending if you're in a slightly different crowd later on. Um, But surely this is going to be your ambition for life, to grow into being this kind of older man. And ladies, don't switch off either. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to be praying this sort of thing for the men in our church family, um, as we're going to have a look at it? And that doesn't just apply for this as all of these different groups go through. Don't switch off. It's so relevant. Either you are one of these things, you're going to be one of these things, or it's a great thing to pray for these things to to 
become more and more apparent in our church family. Um, so let's go. Um, what, what are these older men to be like? Um, well, firstly, they're called to be temperate, very literally sober-minded. Um, Paul's not really talking about uh, like laying off the booze. He's talking about the kind of clear-headedness that comes from being sober. That's what it, the older men are meant to be like. What else? They're meant to be worthy of respect. They're to be dignified. They're to be um, that sort of sense of being venerable or august or, um, you know, someone who adspi- uh, inspires admiration. The older men are to be self-controlled. Um, that means to be sort of ruled by wisdom. Men who keep their heads. Men who aren't driven by peer pressure, you know, um, driven by what other people think, uh, worried about how they stack up against their neighbour. They're not driven by impulses either because they're self-controlled. Uh, they they're no, don't give in to sort of bouts of anger or feeling irritable or craving a drink or needing to take yourself off to hit a golf ball. They're to be self-controlled. What else are the older men to be? They're to be sound in faith, in love and endurance. They're to be healthy, sound in all these aspects. Because these older men, in many ways, they're the backbone of the church. They're there in a sense of physical maturity. But Paul wants more from them than that. He wants them to be spiritually mature. Mature in their biblical understanding. Mature in their grasp of the gospel. This is how older men ought to be. Gents, think about it. But Paul doesn't stop there. Older women, down in verse 3 and 4. Let's read it together. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And so, um, did you see the first thing that Paul calls older women to be? Reverent in behavior. Now that um, Paul is getting at, a sort of sense of being in the presence of God. That's, that's sort of what reverence getting at, isn't it? Uh, acting rightly in the knowledge that they live before a holy God. Uh, it's the sort of sense that you get from, uh, do you remember Anna in Luke's Gospel, the lady who, who dwelt in the, in the temple of the Lord for years and years and years? It's that sort of sense, I think, is going on here. Um, and so the older women, that to live reverently, to live in that sense of being in God's presence, not in, in an out-of-control way. They're not to be slaves to much wine. That's literally what it means there. Um, they're not, not to be addicted to it. They're not to have tongues which are loose and slander people and cut people down. What else are they to be? They're to teach what is good. Now, first and foremost, I, I think that older women, this kind of teaching that, that Paul is talking about here, it's a lifestyle. It's an example kind of teaching. It's not particularly the sort of formalized, like, classroom sort of scenario that we might think, um, you know, someone sort of speaking from the front. Um, it's, it's almost certainly not what Paul was thinking about when he wrote this down. Although there is space for that, um, women having teaching roles, and we can talk about that. Um, but do you see that the kind of teaching that's going on here that Paul is talking about is... Um, it takes place in the way that women are together within the church. They sort of rub shoulders with one another. They learn from one another. They give to one another. And notice it's an active thing, isn't it? Um, They are to teach. That's not something that just happens by the by. Older women, to live reverently, to teach what is good. And so we'll move on, because it's very closely intermeshed with the younger women. Let's have a look at them in verses 4 to 5. 
Um, older women, they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. What do the younger women need teaching in, training in? They need training in being husband lovers. Um, It might be that a a wife marries a husband and uh, they they agree that actually, um, you know, he's going to work really hard so that they can afford that house in Chinnam or in Hook uh, or somewhere like that. Maybe even old Basing if he goes really hard. But, um, but But she didn't agree that he's going to leave before breakfast, he's going to come home after dinner, and then he's going to spend all night asleep on the sofa with the TV remote nailed to his hand. Us men aren't easily lovable all the time. We're prone to adolescence or being overbearing, or the opposite, sort of being too passive. Um, lots of you know that I got married quite recently. If, if two months of marriage has taught me anything, is that there are plenty of reasons why I am hard to love. Sam is going to need plenty of help from you older ladies to love me. Um, and, and all the more so when you think about the sort of time that we live in. We live in a time where the, the voice of the world says, you know, you do you. If things get too hard in a marriage, think about divorce. But no, Paul says to Titus, get the older women to teach the younger women to be husband lovers. What else are they to, to train them in? Um, to be children lovers. Did you spot that too? And, oh my goodness, children, they can be hard to love too, right? Um, lots of you are parents of teenagers or have been parents of teenagers. You know, did you ever have the sort of, them turn around to you and say, oh, I just don't ever want to talk to you again. And they sort of shove their headphones in. Um, or teenagers are really good at like rolling their eyes, aren't they? Um, and just going, oh. How did I get parents who are such idiots? <laughs> or like slamming doors. Teenagers are great at slamming doors. And, uh, you know, as, as much as it can be funny to, to joke about, what do you do when your teenage son or daughter slams the door and just screams through it, saying, I hate church and I hate God and I'm not going this morning? How about the other end of the age spectrum? Um, Small ones. They are hard to love. Um, you know, the kicking and the screaming and liquid coming out of both ends at 2 a.m. That's awful. Um, maybe it's getting snarled at and screamed at because they want pizza, um, but they ate their pizza earlier and so there's none left. Um, or more seriously, it might be, it might be that you take your baby home from the hospital and you're not even sure if you like it. It's rare, but it, and it's horrible for everyone concerned, but it does happen. But what we get is a wonderful picture. It's a picture of an arm around the shoulder, an older woman coming alongside a younger woman and saying, do you know what? I almost despaired when X did Y. Let me tell you how I lived through it. Let me tell you what we've done. Let me tell you how we prayed. Let me tell you about the grace of God. Let me listen for a while. Let me encourage you. Lots of people take these verses as a sort of evil imposition by chauvinistic men um, designed to sort of downtread and, and, and put women in their place. But this passage is, it isn't saying all women uh, need to marry and to have children. 
Um, but I think we need to recognize reading this, that is the, the general majority norm for most women in most times and places. So that's why we get instructions here about uh, loving husbands and loving children and why it's important for us to hear older women train the younger women to do this. But that's not everything. That's not everything at all. Have a look down with me again. What else are they to to train the the younger women to do? To train them to be self-controlled. Again, that idea of, of lives lived under wisdom. They're to train them to be pure, innocent, blameless, morally pure. They're to train them to be busy at home. Again, it's not saying give up the day job, um, women shouldn't work. It's not saying that. It's saying get them to live that wise life. Like the woman from the end of Proverbs in chapter 31. That woman, she's strong, isn't she? She's active. She's meeting people's needs. She's respected in the community. She's productive. That's the kind of thing that's, that uh, Paul's saying, get the older women to teach the younger ones. Um, what else? To be subject to their husbands or submissive to their husbands. I guess it's worth just saying it's, it's submissive to their own husbands, not other people's husbands. Um, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's easy for us to read this with a 21st century lens and to sort of wince slightly. But do you see, that's, that's not at all what Paul means. Paul, he's saying it in the context of, of how the Bible understands this. It's, it's godly to live like this. It's Eden-like. Do you remember with Adam and Eve in the garden? It's, it's encouraging these younger women so that they're ready to love their husbands in the same way they love Christ and his leadership and his headship. That's a wonderful thing. Young men, have a look at verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, that's only one thing, isn't it? That's fascinating. I don't know if you thought about that. Uh, don't worry about all the rest, young men. You can only focus on one thing. Interpret that how you like. <laughs> it's quite striking, isn't it? Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Um, and you might have noticed as we've gone through these, these different categories so far, that's the common thread to each of these groups, isn't it? Um, it's it's sli- perhaps slightly more in the background of the older women, but it's there. Uh, be self-controlled. And so a fair question to ask ourselves might be, maybe a sort of diagnostic um, of, of how we're doing, what we're like, um, how do we sort of measure up to this, is where am I out of control in my life? Perhaps it's my wallet. Maybe I, I just can't stop spending um, maybe it's my diary. I, I'm always busy. I've got no time for people. I've certainly got no time for, to spend with God uh, on my own. Um, maybe it's eating. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your work. Perhaps you're lazy or a workaholic. Uh, maybe it's your pornography use. Maybe it's your driving. Maybe it's getting carried away by fantasies and imagination. Where are you out of control in your life? Slaves, verse 9 and 10. Have a look at it with me. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, again, that might be something that causes us to wince slightly, but again, the, the, the time that Paul's writing, almost a third of the Roman Empire was in slavery at the time. Um, I'm not saying that makes it okay, but it's a different kind of situation. Um, and what are they called to do? They're called to be submissive to their masters. Did you spot that? It's quite similar, isn't it, to, to wives to their husbands? 
And why are they to do that? It's, of course, because they delight. Paul wants them to delight submitting to their masters the same way they delight submitting to Jesus as their masters. They're to be not, not to be argumentative. You know, there's no talking back to be had. They're, they're not to pilfer. So no stealing of the boss's time or, or stuff. And they're to prove themselves trustworthy. Now, it might be we've, we've rattled through um, each of these different categories. It might be that um, you're one of those people that say, actually, I don't think this is relevant anymore. It's so out of step. Uh, we should rewrite it for the 21st century. But I want to gently suggest, if, if that's you, I think you've missed that this is hugely countercultural, even in the first century when it's written. I mean, just remember, have a look back at verse 12 of chapter 1. This is so counter to the culture in Crete at the time. And so this, this stuff that we might like some of it, we might dislike some of it, um, it is countercultural in every culture and in every century. It is confronting. It does challenge us and how we think, doesn't it? But when seen in action, if you really saw that uh, arms around the shoulder, these, these uh, inspiring examples of men and women in the church family, that dignity, that beauty, it can't be spoken against. And so I want us to ask, even if, if it grates a little bit, some of this stuff, are we going to take these words seriously? brings us to verse 11, and that word for. I know lots of you know this, but whenever you see this in the Bible, that word for, alarm bells should go off, because it is a big because. We're about to see the reason for this changed behavior um, that Paul wants among the church in Crete. The reason um, is coming up in a second, uh, because the gospel is about changing people. Yes, it's about forgiving people, but it is about changing people too. Um, now, there are two ways that you and I like to pursue change. I, I wonder which one you tend towards. I suspect we're all a muddle of both. The first is through effort, right? I like to sort of oh, screw myself up and come up with a bunch of rules and a timetable and all that sort of thing. But that sort of way of pursuing change, that will leave us burdened and crushed. If we try and pursue these things by effort, that's not going to work. It might be that, that you tend towards the other sort of side of like, oh, well, God said he's going to change us. We can sort of just let it happen then. You know, you might have heard the, the phrase, you know, let go and let God. He's got it sorted. Um, or how about this one? Don't wrestle, just nestle. Like, it's a bit bad, that one, isn't it? But do you see, that, that sort of, it feels very out of step, doesn't it, with, with these instructions here in Titus. So how is it that we change? Well, we're going to see following that four in chapter 11. And we're going to see that it comes from two appearings. Have a look. The first one's there in verse 11. God's grace has appeared, verse 11. And then down in verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear in glory. Two appearings. Um, and these, these appearings, they're the things that are going to change us. We'll, we'll dig into them a bit more in a minute. But sometimes we, th- we think that God wants to change us a little bit. A little bit like, um, oh, what, uh, what are those bushes called? The, the, the topiary bushes. Um, we think that God wants to get out his shears and just like give us a little trim on the side and, the, and on the back. And that's and maybe make us look like a swan or something. Um, but no, these appearings, they're not like that. They're not just sort of buffing off the edges. These appearings radically reorientate our entire lives. They don't trim us, but it's more like uprooting the whole bush and changing us completely. They train us 
uh, these two appearings to change rightly across the whole spectrum of our relationships, the whole spectrum of those different uh, ones that Paul has just highlighted. So let's have a look at appearing number one, uh, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So this grace that appears, this, uh, this, uh, that Paul's writing about, is clearly, isn't it, is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because <laughs> that's what brings salvation. It brings salvation from the penalty of sin. <laughs> the, the appearing of Jesus uh, in the past, it rescues us for an eternal life of knowing God. But notice how Paul uh, describes this appearing. He describes it as grace. Something that's unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted. Something that's free and poured out because of God's love for you and me. That's radically different from how you and I seek change, isn't it? It's not be better. It's not do more. It's not slap yourself about uh, before you do it. God says, understand my grace. Grace says, come as you are. But it doesn't leave you as you are. This isn't a sort of cheap grace, a surface-level thing. It's deep and meaningful. And so it teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to renounce them, disown them. Jesus' gracious death means that I am dead to those things. It teaches us this grace to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. So I'm to embrace this way of living. Jesus' gracious resurrection means I'm alive to good. It's grace that is the power for change in me. So that's appearing number one. And appearing number one leads to appearing number two. We wait for our blessed hope. Have a look down with me again at verse 13. While we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So this glorious appearing of our great God and Jesus Christ, uh, what does that mean? We're waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Notice how Paul describes this Jesus who we're waiting to return, who we're waiting for. He's the one who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. We're rescued from wickedness. It's that sort of idea of, um, you know, a dank, grim, slimy, medieval dungeon. Someone's chained up in there, but a hero comes and pays the price to get them out. They're not going to go back, are they, to that dungeon? It's that sort of idea. What, what else is this one who we're waiting for like? He's, he's the one who's purifying a people. He is changing sinners into saints. He's the one who owns these people. In other words, while we wait for his appearing, we've got to know that we belong to Jesus. We're possessed by Jesus. We're owned by him and precious to him. And so do you see how these two appearings, this grace, this sound doctrine, do you see how they train us? It redefines who we are. And that's all the more important, isn't it, as, uh, as we're in a culture that's so confused about all sorts of things, but particularly about gender and about what it looks like to be a man or a woman. But this, this grace, these two appearings, they redefine who we are. And did you notice how these, these two appearings, they interplay with each other? Why do we say no to sin? 
it's because I've been redeemed from wickedness. Why do I say yes to godliness? Because I'm being purified for Jesus. Why do I seek to please him? Because I belong to Jesus. I'm owned by him. This totally redefines who we are. It redefines who we are by reminding us how we started by the Lord's gracious death for us and reminding us that we have an eternal purpose as we wait for him to come back. And did you notice that purpose? Um, Did did, did you notice what all these kinds of groups of people are being transformed into? There at the end of verse 14. Have a look at it again. People who are eager to do good, zealous, passionate about doing good. Do you see, it's an absolute joy to be changed like this. It's not a drudgery. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. It's turning people into the kind of person that longs to see Jesus glorified, not reviled. Verse 5. It's the kind of person that wants to adorn the doctrine of God. Verse 10. Because they're living to adorn themselves with the righteous acts, like a bride getting ready to please her husband. Now, if you don't feel anything when you hear that, when you hear about these two appearings, if it's like water off a duck's back, perhaps because you're new to church, you're incredibly welcome. Thank you for coming this morning. Or it might be um, that you're here and it's just too familiar. It's the same old, same old. If you don't feel anything as you hear about these two appearings appearings and how they change us into these people of Titus 2, it's the sound doctrine of grace is what you need. Don't try and get there yourself. Don't just let it wash over you. Have a chat with us afterwards. Let us introduce you to Jesus, his grace, and the two appearings that totally transform us. If you are a Christian, if, you, if your heart is beating a little bit faster because of what we looked at this morning, because of what we've been reminded of, keep going. Keep going. Plumb into this grace, this doctrine, this healthy truth about the Lord Jesus and his two appearings. And these two appearings, they need to be taught. Do you see that in verse 15? These are the things you should teach. So play your part. Teach this grace. Let's grow as God's family here at St. Mary's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God of grace. Thank you that you have given us the Lord Jesus in the past, that he died for us and rose again so that we can be free from wickedness and alive to godliness. Thank you that we are waiting for him to return and that our ultimate purpose, our future destination, if we trust in him, is to be purified and redeemed and his own precious possession forever. Help us to swim around in these truths. As we do so, please help us to become more and more like these older men, younger men, older women, younger women that we see in Titus. Thank you for the ways that that is true amongst us here, but we we long for more. Help us to abound in these things, we pray. Amen.